For July 23rd, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 525. She's a real glow-getter. Thinking it, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny and brutality it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your fierce, angry friends from the internet throwing each other around. We're never happier than when we toss each other and body slam each other in the ring of serious intellectual debate. And today, a show about a ragtag group of friends who come together weekly and perform together in order to self-actualize and entertain a small number of people. No, it's not season two of Glow, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling on Netflix. It's the overthinking it podcast itself. The thing is a metaphor for the thing itself. I am your announcer, Matthew Rather, and entering the ring now is Peter Fenzel, or as he is known in wrestling. It's the Jersey Jaw, and I'm just here telling you that I've never been happier than I am right now here on your podcatcher. That's right. Everyone here, listen to this podcast now. You are the greatest fans in the country, the greatest virtual city in the country, and I can't believe that I have the opportunity to get on the canvas in front of all of you tonight. And joining him in the ring is Mark Lee, or as he is known. What's up, Overthinking Earth? It's Mark Sungmin, Robert E. Lee, a syncretic combination of Korean American and Southern American identity, here to tell you that the South and South Korea shall rise again. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you may know me as the announcer of this podcast, but when I step into the ring, I become... Like, the bleeding edge. Like, so sharp in my cultural uh, forwardness. Guys, I'm going to eat a grain bowl before we podcast together. I'm going to have some acai juice. <laughs> All right. edge. <laughs> yeah? Yeah? These what? people out there deserve the best from you like they always deserve the best from me and the best from Lee. So you make sure that that grain bowl gets fully digested and processed into waste before you come out onto this stage of glory and honor to do battle with the rest of us. Oh, that's no problem because I been eating a lot of fermented foods like kimchi to replenish my gut flora. So I'm literally crawling with goodness. <laughs> well, that's all the wrestlers we have on this show, and there are no more intellectual wrestlers. I'm so glad. <laughs> what is that sound? Oh, hello, all you sh- Friends, it is Chiquita Raquelita. The and, and her wrestling partner, Amos the Barn Razor. <laughs> you English have stolen our proud tradition of wrestling. I have come here to tell you all that your ideas are bourgeois capitalist garbage. And and your technology that stops and keeps going past the 19th century is a heresy to God. I may raise barns like my Amish brethren, but I will tear each of you down. Oh no, it sounds like two podcast wrestlers from the TFT podcast have invaded the Overthinking It podcast and are here to match wits and do battle in the ring. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, right. shall we begin? And scene. And scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean, I guess we could have kept it going for the entire hour, but that would probably be more annoying uh, than, than fun. And I think, like, maybe one of the great things about wrestling is that they can keep it going <laughs> for so long uh, that, like... Um, you know the 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 personas and stuff like that don't don't become uh don't become completely intolerable and that by that last episode of glow episode i guess 10 like it's just riveting like they're so you know they're so good and it's so fun and it's you know it's it feels like you've been brought in on a joke and are really enjoying it uh with with them um 
Let's do a uh, let's do a quick round on uh, let's do a quick round on our wrestling identities. Pete, uh, I guess you're from Jersey, and that's where yours comes from. Yeah, I figured that I'd be somebody who talks a lot, and in that sense, the uh, the the idea that you always want to be the home team wherever you go, even if you're for somewhere else, was kind of what I picked to to. I wanted to be something of a sort of a face, but not, not quite like The Rock or like sort of when Triple H is behaving himself. But uh, I don't know, not quite a not quite a macho man either, because I don't know, I wasn't born in that generation. But something in the middle of all those things, something where you can do all the things that you know the crowd is going to like, because that is what they paid to see mm. even when they paid nothing so <laughs> mark where 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 were, were you coming from the the which which I'm, south or both and at the same time well both i mean like longtime listeners of the podcast will know that i am a korean american uh who grew up in the south alabama in particular uh and uh wrestling pro wrestling um as well evinced by glow has a long tradition of mining ethnic and regional stereotypes for broad humor and just kind of like over over outsized characters that they put in the ring. So, you know, I didn't have to go far for that. It's just, it's what you see is what you get. It's right there. I mean, like, you know, that would never work as a actual professional wrestling character, like a Korean American wearing like a Confederate flag belt buckle. It's like, it's just wrong on, on so many different levels. Like I do I'm not, not endorse convinced. that. I'm not convinced at it all. wouldn't work. I'm not convinced it wouldn't work. Mark wrong on so many levels is not something that disqualifies you from people actually liking you in there. There's I mean, it could be heel. It could be heel, right? You yeah, have a race yeah. trader thing going on. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> I guess, right, in a lot of the... Well, I mean, I think we're supposed to... Well, okay, it's, it should be actually an open question we, that we discuss later, how we're supposed to react to some of the ethnic stereotyping in the show, because obviously, you know, we, we, we are uh, right-thinking progressives uh, and Netflix subscribers, and so that that's... Uh, I wonder what red state Netflix looks like. When you set their algorithm loose... Uh, on you know someone else's preferences, I wonder if it's just all all Walking Dead, which you know is the like a red state show. And and uh, TFT uh, podcast punk correspondent Rachel D, where did your uh, wrestling persona come from? Well, I think she, I, I think I was thinking of like another kind of like communist heel, right? That she was gonna be like a Cuban party member comrade type heel. Um, though I think I forgot to say that, so it kind of turned into this more just sort of like illegible like Ric Flairish thing like yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know Flair, right? <laughs> yeah or something like <laughs> like like he's like I don't know I I don't like your I I I don't like uh, capitalism and I'm Latin. I don't know. That could be really anyone, <laughs> anything. Yeah, it, it became a little less. Um, I think had I remembered to say I was from Cuba, it would have the story would have been a little more it complete. Read. It, totally it read. read. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But um. But yes, that's I think where I was coming from. And uh, and TFT podcast host Ryan Chile. Well, yeah, I, I was the I'm the uh, ultimate Amish warrior, right? Um, and, uh, it's, I mean, he wrestles with the spirit. Well, I think he it, it is interesting. We all we all chose like sort of an element of where we are from, right? And um, and this idea of where you're from and how it constitutes who, who you are is is really interesting because it informs. Most, if not all, of the characters uh, in Glow, right? And so everyone, um, and, and I think that you know, season one was really focused on kind of building each of these characters, and, and season two is a lot of setting them loose and kind of seeing how they interact with each other and and how they interact with the the actual people who are portraying them, right? And it's, you know, it, it's interesting, right? You know, I am not Amish, um, but that is, that's, you know, when I say I'm from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, that's what anyone asks, like, oh, are you Amish? Oh, right? are you that's, Amish? Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, no, I'm just an Amish. You're, you're, you're still, you're... You're you're on an eighteen year old eighteen year long room spring at this point, exactly. right? Right, Ryan? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I'm not Amish. I just play one on TV. Yeah, um, and yeah, and and mine was I. You know, I'm I'm lucky enough to have uh, a TFT podcast co host. Ryan Chile and uh, punk correspondent Rachel D visiting me in Los Angeles this week, and uh, it's caused me to see the city through new eyes and to understand the things that I take for granted, like grain bowls and uh, and a real obsessive uh, focus on gut health, you know. And just 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 Google microbiome, okay? Just everyone Google microbiome and really, you know, make sure that that 
everything's uh, good in the hood. Um, the uh, uh, under the hood, I guess I should say the 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 stereotypes of that. And I also I sort of wanted to experiment with a persona that was non-aggressive a little bit, you know, rather, because there's this so much even and even in Glow from the ladies, there's so much of this. Uh, there's so much of this, like, rah, the, the style of confrontation is so, um, over the top and so aggressive. So right? you're, you're, you're the world's most passive aggressive wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, pa- if that's okay with you. <laughs> you're going to leave a note on the clothesline. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's jump into a little bit of, uh, let's jump into a little bit of glow. Let me start, uh, by asking you, Pete. Do you have the glow? Me? Yeah. Do, do I do, have the glow? Do you have the glow? I don't think so. Is that no? <laughs> All right. Probably not. Moving on. Then. Uh, you mean like in my life? Well, I mean, no, but the, hold on a minute. No is not a non-answer. <laughs> and I think maybe that's the, the key here, right? Is that you shouldn't be less interested in me necessarily because I don't have the glow. Oh, glow it. as a TV show isn't just a pro wrestling show where the characters who are failing to be pro wrestlers are not watchable, right? It's, it's a drama and comedy that's largely concerned with people who aren't succeeding at being pro wrestlers necessarily, I guess. Right. Or aren't necessarily succeeding in having the glow. I mean, I say I'm not sure because, you know, I'm like neck deep in wedding planning and I don't think anybody feels like they've got power over their life when that's going on. (laughs) So uh, it's it's something of it's something of an arm bar or suplex that you get to experience uh, in slow motion over the course of months. But yeah, I don't know. Do you what are you asking around to everybody? Is no, does Mark I just have the glow? I just wanted to. I I, we, I guess we'd have to ask him. I mean, I felt like it was sort of an exercise in question begging, and you would have to explain oh. what is the glow. Oh, what the glow is. So in so by the way, this episode what, what we're going even, to be talking about glow. What <laughs> even what even is a glow? What is a glow? So you're talking about glow as a TV show, right? Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, it's a TV yes, show. Good. Like, well, then I'm moving along. Glow, moving bro. along. No. Bro, do you even glow? <laughs> bro, do you even glow? Yes, I like it. Uh, <laughs> let's ask Mark. Mark, what, what is glow? Glow is many things, right? It is um, the Netflix television show. It is the show within the Netflix television show. It is the actual wrestling show from the 80s that all of this is based on but i think uh, most pertinent to this discussion here glow is a sense of power a sense of agency um that is not really permanent right uh, to what you're talking about pete is like you know people feel the glow have the glow uh, at certain points of the show um and then it passes from them i think interestingly right you start starts out in season one Bash and the and the director uh, Sam seem like they have the power. They have the glow. In particular, uh, Bash, a drug induced, money induced glow. And in season two, we see how that glow fades from him. Uh, the money, while well, it's transit, it comes and goes. It's really at his mother's whims. His uh, butler slash um, uh, unrequited gay l- lover um, dies. He loses the glow. Um, Sam loses the glow, gets it back, you know, and like his how his filmmaking is 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 lauded. Uh, but uh, and and by then he has a glow at the end. And of course, all the wrestlers as well, too, uh, inside the ring and outside of the ring. Uh, they they take on roles of power, lose it and then get it back. So the glow is a lot of all of those things there. Here's a, here's a question for the panel. Is the glow zero sum? Right. So is the glow like a crown um, that you can can fight over and there can can only be one glow or is a glow a level that you can reach that you can level up your own glow? And and when you reach the level, can you be knocked down again? Yeah. Right. Like or is the glow trait like in that it's sort of stable, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a progression, but a stable progression over the course of your right, life, right, right. like uh, uh, mercury poisoning <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. Right. Where you're it's just kind of glow. You know, <laughs> It's metallic. It's it's a sheen. Um, you know, uh, is it? Yeah, it's well, right, because it seems like when when well, uh, um, yes and no. I mean, I think the answer to your question, Ryan, is a qualified yes. Right. Because uh, there are t- someone has to be in charge and right. Whoever is calling the shots sort of seems to have have the glow. And it's not just it's not just. Uh, authority per se. It's also sort of charisma or soft power or things like this or the kind of the Muppets take Manhattan bit of like, you know, that's a sort of way of, of glowing, you know, yeah, yeah. as the, as the millennials say, we glowing, we glowing, <laughs> you know, uh, AF. 
And um, that, uh, but that, like, there's also, I think, an aspect of it when Sam shares the directing with mm-hmm. Ruth, yeah. right? And that, like, there's a kind of, there is a family glow, or there's a, you know what I mean? There's a, a unified unit. The, the, I mean, that's, I, I guess that's redundant, so, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh no, I you know, I think I think that's um I think that's interesting. I think if anything it's like the show sort of sh- showcases like the different characters have different perspectives on whether or not glow is a zero sum game. Mm-hmm. I think for um you know, I think for I'm forgetting the character's name, but for um uh Liberty Bell. For Debbie, yeah. For Debbie. I think she does view it as a zero-sum yep. game, yep. right? Um, and I think the kind of one of the big tensions, like, in the show is her friendship with Roof and her relationship with Roof. And, like, I think there's a lot in the first season. And in this season, too, where they're kind of... But a lot more in the first season, I think they're developing... Their relationship is playing out through the fact that they're, like, the... You know, that Roof is playing the heel, mm-hmm. right? And I think this season, we sort of see more this... Um, a lot of, I think, the tension kind of driving their relationship is, you know, Debbie has these, like, zero-sum glow-getting maneuvers. She's a real glow-getter. She's a real glow-getter, <laughs> right. But Roof is more like that soft glow, you know. Right, she's more it's like... The, cl- the collective glow. Is the collective glow. And she actually, you know, she ends up taking the crown at the end of the season out of, like, basically having, like, won everyone over with her kind of charisma and dedication and um, kind of, like, overall, like, compassion and relationship building, you know, right? Everyone wants to see her succeed. Um, And I do think there's that... I think they kind of play out that tension of, like, how they see um, glow-getting, right? And um, how that plays out. And and it plays out in the fight between them, right? There's, like, in the the episode after... In the the hospital, right? Um, After uh, Debbie has broken Ruth's leg, they kind of have this fight. And it it happens, you know, the the kind of whole arc is building to this fight where... um, And... um, Right, the kind of they get to the core of their relationship, where um, Ruth says, you know, uh, basically, you would just like feast on my misery, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you, our, our dynamic was that you would listen to my failures in personal life and professionally, and feel great about yourself, right? And, and it was kind of that she, she basically accused of her of being a glow parasite, right. um, and even, and then for coming in and taking taking this away from um, Ruth. Uh, in you know, in in the interest of her uh, of her own kind of giving herself a distraction, um, and I think a similar kind of thing about this with Debbie is that right when Debbie um, sees that these contracts are uh, that they're given early in the season are grotesquely unfair, rather than um, unionizing the wrestlers, right, uh, yeah. <laughs> right, that she she basically does an end run and makes herself um, a producer and negotiates her own contract, right, and so she, it's, I think you're absolutely. Right, that uh, you know, you guys are right that this is um, there are these different philosophies of glowing, and that this it's also it's in a context like a social context where everyone is in one or more because it's it's sort of intersectional, right? I, one or more subordinate positions yeah. socially, mm-hmm. right? And so, like Debbie can mm-hmm. sort of in the context of this, she can kind of get uh, more power, a better contract, or whatever. But she's still like a single mom, or she's still you know a down on her luck soap opera actress or something like that, right? Like the, there are a lot of uh, perspectives from which she's uh, you know uh, from from which she can be viewed as on kind of the downside of a double standard. Or, or of a kind of social um, dichotomy, and and that's true across the board in in different ways for each characters, uh, for each character as they sort of you know deal with uh, uh, sexism, gender identity, gender sexual identity, um, and you know and on and on ethnic ethnicity and so forth, right? And that's I mean and that's sort of a that's that's. That's an interesting thing. I, I I don't know. Before we move on, Pete, do you have do you, do you want to close this out on Glow? Do you have thoughts yeah. uh, about Glow? Sure. So I think that in a in a relative sense, in terms of each individual character, I I agree with Rachel 100 percent that they all have different ideas of what this sort of glow and sense of power is. And I think that 
the show as a whole in juxtaposing them comes to different sorts of conclusions. And I would particularly point to the gendered power dynamics where you might have a relationship between a man who is in a supervisory position like uh, Sam or like even the cameraman or whatever, where he's being a, a real self-centered jerk. Uh, even even the scene, a good example of this is the scene where what's the cameraman's name again? Randy, Randy, the cameraman. I'm just going to call him that mustache face. I, I think it's Russell. Russell, the cameraman. There it is. Russell, Russell mustache face, the cameraman, when uh, Ruth hurts herself, insists on, you know, Kevin Cosner bodyguarding her out of the situation, which is totally unnecessary and, in fact, actively dangerous. And you can tell that he's really into this idea of representing himself in this manner and playing this role of the savior, even though, like, she doesn't really need it. She she doesn't need a savior. She needs uh, she needs to get laid is what she needs. Right? Like she needs to have like sort of shame shameless and just okay and permissible sexual attraction for another human being. Right? Like that's what Ruth needs. She doesn't need somebody to carry her. Right? And like yes, you know. Uh, Russell and Ruth have different ideas about what the relationship is like that get negotiated. But it's every time it seemed that other than the super skeezy network exec who gets no benefit of character complexity, uh, anytime that there was a male character who is exerting some sort of presumptive dominance over a female character, especially by not listening to her or being really cruel to her or doing something that he needed to do for himself and pretending it was for her. I think what you were seeing is something of an undermining of the idea that glow is really zero sum because it's not like the guys who were in power had the glow. They were also tremendously insecure and generally felt terrible about themselves. And so this idea that like, yeah, you can dominate another person, but that's not really the glow. That's not really the power. That's not the sense of feeling powerful. It's kind of a cheap substitute that you can achieve through nastiness. And that is not going to really satisfy you because it's not the thing that you feel like you're really missing. Especially with the Mark Maron character, I don't feel like he does well with being in charge. Right. He makes lots of mistakes and he's very insecure and being in charge doesn't make him a better person. The thing that makes him a better person is being honest and artistic and and kind of straight talking people. But uh, but it's like he is doesn't get more glow by having more power. He gets more glow in different ways. Right. Depending on different relationships and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, it's so interesting because even in the scene right after Russell carries Ruth out, he then turns, he's like, I, I could have done that. I could have, I could have carried her yeah. in the ring. Right? Yep. Um, and, and that I, jerk move. Yeah. When he walks in front of everybody in the hospital. Anyway, keep going. Keep going. No, no, and and I, I think this is really interesting about him because what kind of reawakens him as a kind of leader or kind of as a character is when um, he goes and goes to the screening of Gina the Machina, right? His uh, his cult classic uh, horror film, banned horror film from the seventies, and uh, and remembers that um, on in that film, right? He was so meticulous in pursuing his vision that the cameraman quit and he shot it himself, right? And that this idea of he he's not a manager, um, you know, he is he's he he gets he gets the glow from doing the thing, right? And he actually goes back and shoots an episode right, of right, Glow, right. and that's like for him, he's yeah. like. You know, I don't know, coming uh, coming into his own somehow, or that's a moment where he can sort of sort of do his thing. And uh, yeah, what's that? And how he parents too, right? That I think his relationship with Justine, um, his daughter, is similar, right? That early in the season, when he's trying to, when he's he thinks he's supposed to be the boss dad, uh, it goes very badly, right. right? But when he is just kind of like kind of dealing with this teenager and caring for her, right? When she, like, passes out on the couch, is sleeping on the couch, and he just kind of, and he puts the blanket on her, right? right. And, um, and, that, and does the act of caring, does the thing itself, um, that is, like, what, like, again, I think levels him up, right? And uh, gives him, uh, gives him the, the uh, kind of the parental glow. Yeah. The the uh, the parental glow, right? Because yeah, it's I, I was realizing at the end when they're all sort of sitting together. Oh, this is another show that's sort of a family show, mm-hmm. right? And it's I I think like to a certain extent, not to get too treacly or too reductive about about the message, because I think there's a lot more going on than this. But that like, um, and one of the other things that's going on is that it's a little bit. 
it's it's a little bit p word right it's a little bit problematic about like kind of enjoying the kind of the relish in the ethnic stereotypes but but i mean but we're doing it ironically but are we if we're doing you know what i mean but like to a certain extent i want to like sweep that aside because it's it's maybe not even in the 10 to 12 most interesting questions that you can I, ask I don't, about I don't want to fully sweep it aside let's can i address it well, real yeah, fast I, I want to fully sweep it oh, aside go we're okay. gonna have to go head to head in the in the ring but but what happens and yeah yeah pete absolutely let's talk about it what happens by the end is that like a family is formed where the the ethos is you know, we're getting jerked around by society. You know, society, man. I sound like the teenager. Um, we're getting jerked around by uh, these stupid contracts and, and not being allowed to sort of self-actualize because of, like, business people who, quote-unquote, own our characters. And the characters are, like, based in their personas. So there's this, like, weird kind of dominance that's exercised there. But, like, kind of within the confines of this ring, you know, or this bus or this, this family, we, uh, we treat each other okay. You know, um, so what, what, what is, what do you think, Pete, about the, the kind of the full throated go? I mean, they really go at it. Um, they have to, it would be, it would be bad to sort of pull a punch on, uh, or to kind of really wink in, in some of the, the ethnic stereotype stuff that, that they do. Um, you know, I don't know. How do you, how do you read it? Well, because there's the whole plot of, the welfare queen and her son from Stanford, who comes to the show, right, and is really offended by her performance, which is an awful minstrelsy performance. But on thinking about her as a person, he recognizes, right, he makes this transition from saying you were really offensive to you were really strong. Mm -hmm. You were really strong. You pushed around the white woman, right? And her prize for the sort of forgiveness of her son for what she did is this rest that she gets to have. She gets to sleep in the car while he drives. And I think part of what this is saying is that this isn't really a show about getting power. It's a show about experiencing powerlessness and watching and empathizing with other people who are experiencing powerlessness. And so there is a certain amount of having its cake and eating it too because we get pleasure out of watching the stereotypes being enacted. But the story that's being told is that these people have to do this because they don't have the power to say no. Because I mean, yeah, they could literally say no, but then she would be back to just wrangling the audience for Family Feud, and she wouldn't have anything, right? So her situation is better because she's able to access this thing that's existing in the public psyche in this specific way. And so there's a question of, yeah, you are really offensive, but at the same time, let me recognize that you're facing a lot of adversity, and the aspect of you that I really respect is the strength that you're showing in the situation. It's like, I respect people who try even when they fail. It's kind of a part of the – it's a professional wrestling wrestling ethos. It's a big part of face uh, face characters in wrestling is like really sincerely giving it your all is generally worthy of respect, even to the point where like people treat really crappy characters with a certain amount of sympathy that they don't deserve because they recognize that the person just can't do better, right? It's like, look, you just, you just can't. You, in your situation, you can't do better than what you're doing. And and you're trying hard, and and that makes me sympathetic to you, and makes me want to forgive you for what you did. It is something. Uh, I mean, yeah. it is something that we do to performers, like who we kind of like think about in another time, right? And like that, we we sort of bring we bring the judgment down in the wrong place, right? That is to say, like, it's not, you know, it's not the, and I, of course, I can't forget the name of the the character. I actually think I w- I would have liked. The the first two thirds of the season to spend more time on the ensemble cast rather than just on the Debbie Ruth um, sort of feuding plot, you know. But but uh, so I'm, I can't remember her character's name, which which you know I'm I'm sorry for. But the the that like um, it's not her fault. Like you said, Pete, it's not it's not her fault. And like if you know in succeeding generations, you know uh, the the some uh, some sort of righteous person with a, a different political consciousness or a more awakened political consciousness, right? Like we're to uh, cast about for someone to blame. Like she's the wrong place to yeah. uh, right to. Her name is Tammy. Those- Tammy, by the way, right? It's either Tammy or Tamay. Okay, Tammy. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. And that, like, uh, she's the wrong place. So Tammy's the wrong place to assign responsibility, right? Like, uh, uh, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't get mad at Tammy for for 
doing what she doing what she had to do. Or the I mean the joke from the first the joke from the first season is that Beirut is not even an Arab, right? right? <laughs> like that she's South Asian, and so that's the kind of the ridiculousness of of sort of these stereotypes and how uh, how they. They a little bit. They kind of pre-exist anybody, right? You don't look at someone and figuring out. Uh, you don't look at someone and figure out the stereotype that they have. You like you have a set of stereotypes <laughs> pre-made, and then you just kind of like slot people into those uh, uh, into those buckets as they as they kind of come down the pipe, right? Well, and the character uh, of Beirut, or the character who plays her, I guess, is Arthi, I think, mm-hmm. uh, who in the first season is was a med student, right? He was studying for med school, and then reveals that she has dropped out of med school. Yeah, um, and and is kind of trying to. figure Figure out what she wants from her life, right? And so early on in the season, tries to and, she, and really desperately wants to shed the Beirut character, right? And because I think in the uh, season one finale, you know that the um, you know the uh, crowd threw beer at her, right, and kind of uh, chanted racist chants at her, and she wants to put this behind her, um, but her first kind of exit option is taken away, is, is stolen by the toxic twins, right? The old ladies <laughs> the, the old ladies really also are really straining under the yoke of that stereotype. Right? <laughs> uh, of kind of like violent golden girls. Uh, and so they, they, they steal her idea of the kind of death and resurrection, the kind of metamorphosis character change. Um, but then she finds her exit option later right in the um in the the show within the show within the show uh the the uh right the i think eighth episode uh is the full in-world episode uh and there's a great the great dream ballet right that uh, yeah and i believe if i remember okay, the voiceovers i didn't always want to be a terrorist right? <laughs> <laughs> like i used to just want to dance um and and uh and then she does the um uh, the the dream ballet um, with uh, the the new the oh, w- what's the name of the character junk chain yeah 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 but yeah Yola yeah yeah it's uh, Yolola or Lola, no, Yolo, Yolo. it's Yolanda 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 but she has a nickname and I want to say it's Yolo oh. but I know that is anachronistic like it's Yo Yo right Yo Yo Yolo Yolo Yo Yo and and that this like both kind of um, allows her to kind of access a different part of the character, but then also of herself, right? Because then um, by the end of that arc of the last three episodes of the season, develops a romance um, with Yo-Yo <laughs> and, and sort of starts to move I mean, unfortunately, in, you know, at the time, from one possibly harmful stereotype and kind of um, and, and kind of disempowered or marginalized identity to another, but there's a in kind of recognizing this and starting to figure this out, um, a sense of hope, right? And you, you know, again, we have the um, the heart to heart montage at the end, right? And you kind of go around this whole family and it, and and you know the technique of of getting everyone on the one hand kind of includes this whole family, but also hits these specific nodes of these specific relationships. Relationships, and I think that the relationship um, between Arthi and um, and and Yo-Yo is this kind of way of shifting. I mean, Matt, you mentioned intersectionality earlier, right? So it's kind of shifting a different axis of identity that kind of um, that, that kind of pulls away from kind of one narrow stereotype. Yeah, that in-world episode was something else, right? It was so fun, and it felt like after after sort of not slogging because I really enjoyed it, but sort of wishing that it were. Maybe a little, a little less of the melodrama, like, or that it was sort of resolved, like the, the ankle snap. The hospital episode where they all do weird performances for her. They all do like a weird thing to distract or entertain her in the hospital. And then the in-world glow, glow, glow episode, right? Like was really, uh, was really great. Kicked it into another gear and it went out really strong in the, uh, went out really strong in the kind of the back third of the episode of the season, right? When they have this statement of purpose in the hospital episode that we're going to kind of die on our own terms or something like that. Yeah, right. Um, And and this idea of... And you get... You know, a sense uh, over the course of the season that they're becoming this cult hit, and right in some ways, getting moved to two a.m. is only good for them. Right, it allows them to be fully weird. Uh, and one thing that struck me about the in-world episode is that there's there's 
very little wrestling in it, right? That, that it kind of has become a variety, a variety show or sketch show, kind of sketch, yeah, sketch two comedy music show. videos, um, a uh, a bunch of sketches, and then just two wrestling matches, right? A, a overarching kind of uh, good twin, evil twin plotline, right? It's uh, it's glorious, right? I mean, could could something that I mean. I'm trying to think. I don't watch a lot of 1980s sketch comedy, but I feel like this is much better. It's a such a there's a there's a glow of nostalgia as well because even the goods. I, I, I maybe I'm biased against 80s sketch comedy, but I feel like this is such a interesting modern interpretation of what good. 80s comedy would be right, um, but it's a it's it's so cool because they they ended up creating really good kind of an excellent variety show in its own right that like kind of holds up. Yeah, it's interesting because yeah. to me, like the tone of that show felt to me like they're doing a almost actually like a like laughing or like right. a 1960s 70s um yeah like kind of type. Tone, like the tone of it and like the kind of like early SNL too right like 70s like SNL that's true but I don't think it had that like sheen of like I guess it does have the sheen of like alternative comedy but like the actual like tone and like kind of setup of like the jokes seemed like kind of more this like it's this but like bizarre throwback at like for them and yet I think what's kind of interesting oh, about cool. it is that they because they are the center of it. I think a lot of those shows generally were like much more misogynistic and way more like the jokes were at the expense of like mm-hmm. women, you know. And so I think there's something kind of interesting there. I guess like the uh, you know the campiness. And I feel like it's this interesting thing where they're like doing this kind of almost older style show, but what makes it like campy and weird and edgy is that like they're doing it, mm-hmm. and they have these like bizarre jokes and like. You know, I, you know, I, I don't know yeah, the goat sketch, right? <laughs> but it doesn't have that energy of like, because even I think like a lot of like alternative, um, I think a lot of like, uh, yeah, I think like comedy. I don't know. I, I feel like this is changing, but like, I, I think a lot of times like alternative comedy has still been such a like a, a male like and like dude space. Right, where and it's still you know I'm thinking of like all those kids in the hall sketches where like David Foley was constantly like. Dressing up as a woman, right. you know what I mean, like the office ladies, right? <laughs> right, the yeah. office lady, you know. So it, it's it's like mm. those things were still, like a lot of those jokes are even that, like even like eighties comedy jokes were probably still like predominantly often at the expense of women, you know. Even mm. if there were more like women comedians, like kind of getting involved and stuff. The um, the aesthetic that it really reminds me of is uh, Pee Wee Herman. Oh, that's, oh interesting. that's interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, like Pee Wee's Pee Wee's Playhouse or Pee Wee's Big Adventure, the 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 campiness and the sort of ex, the childlikeness of it as well, yeah. mm-hmm. and this this sort of accessing of child childlike toys and like uh, prop humor and stuff like that, and, and also an you, oddly sexual, a weird, se- uh, not weird, a uh, kind of what uh, whimsically sexualized vision of everything. <laughs> That's a really good point, right? That it's like it's. For kids, it's so strange. My parents didn't let us watch Pee Wee's Playhouse in the house because they thought there was something weird about that guy. No, there, there absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah, a there was something weird about that guy. But he was Paul Rubens was in the Groundlings, the improv yeah. comedy, not improv, the sketch comedy troupe in Los Angeles. And Pee Wee's Playhouse was a like campy right. uh, live show for mm. adults, an after hours sort of show. And you can actually find videotapes. And I found one once in like a video rental store. And I was like. Oh, Pee-wee's Playhouse. <laughs> and my mom let me rent it because it was Pee-wee's Playhouse, you know? It's 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 a little uh it's a little what? Uh irreverent, but it's silly and all in good fun. And I put it in and there's like women taking their clothes off and there's like you know what I mean? There's all this like provocative burlesque of right. you know, of TV show of uh kids TV show stuff that all got stripped out when it became a uh, a weird TV show. But but I but Pete for what it's worth, you're parents were absolutely right there was something <laughs> there was something not right about that guy <laughs> i would also add to what rachel said that like i wonder if it's partly that men have to some degree or another in their identity internalized the idea that they can do whatever they want 
And in, in that sense, it allows them to step easily into kind of comic roles where they satirize and take down society at large, especially at this point in history. But they would so deeply internalized this as a form of their identity related to their gender, right, or our gender, as it were, that like the role, the potential role of women in doing this was like not at all, not at all uh, uh, understood or like consciously considered even i would say uh, and so i guess the question then is like is there a way to take that sexual weirdness and that sort of independence that Wee herman gets from being a man child and give it to women and i think that's sort of what the glow is doing and i think it's kind of good i mean you know i i, I like the episode a lot i thought it was really great i thought it was exemplary of the genre um yeah. i don't know if you guys were satisfied with it I, I like that a lot, and um, I like your theory, Pete, about um, you know the, the male way of satirizing and, and having comedy and kind of taking things down. And that's absolutely what um, pretty much every character in that episode does, except I think for Liberty Bell, who has a very straightforward story about trying to get her daughter back. Right. Is that fair to say? Right. She's not making jokes. I mean, she's an exaggerated character. She was a caricature. Um, but the jokes, she doesn't make fun of things. Um, she is, isn't really even made fun of either. She's just a, a over the top distraught mother trying to get her child back, which by the way, she kind of is in real life as well. It's worth noting, right? Is that what's going on with Liberty Bell? And like, if that's the case, then, um, what, uh, what function does she play in the overall, like just complete madhouse satire that that episode is? I mean, it's pretty funny because of all the women, she's the one who naturally looks the most like a drag queen, right? <laughs> she's got like the bum, she's got the bombastic figure. She's got the huge hair. I mean, it's not natural, but like the way that she wears her, she's she she is in a campy, almost John Waters esque kind of femininity, <laughs> you know. Like, but at the same time, she plays it totally straight. And because we're not living in a time uh, in this show where the general population has a consciousness or awareness of such things, they might not even really be conscious of the fact that Liberty Bell is very camp. Uh, she's like, it's like, that's just how it is. That's just how it is straight down the middle, which is interesting. It might be a mark of how Debbie hasn't really fully inhabited the character. Mm. Maybe it's part of her arm's length that she holds everybody at part of her failure to truly recognize glow as a collective success or failure rather than her own success or failure that might play into how she always kind of stays distant from it. Um, certainly her power relationships are different, I guess than everybody else's. Yeah, no. And um, I think, I think that's accurate. Cause I think there's also, I think Debbie, I think Debbie is mistaken. And I think everyone kind of like believes this at first when they're creating the characters initially that Debbie's character is likable. Right. I think she's mistaken. And I think there's like a kind of mistaken uh, premise at first that like her character is likable and is like naturally the hero and like always likable. And I think the thing about I think wrestling in general is like, you know, these these characters can, you know, there's a like a a broad range of ways the audience can Mm -hmm. uh, like come to these characters and come to appreciate them. And, you know, even if, like, the, I think the stereotypes, like, suggest, like, this kind of more conservative, like, worldview and, like, paint her as, like, they suggest that somehow, like, the leanings are in favor of, like, Liberty Bell and, like, a kind of more conservative ethos. But, like, I think the way the audience comes to it, like, you know, Debbie's character is just as easily the heel and the villain. As, like, right, and they're much happier that, like, for Welfare Queen to, like, right. win. I was thinking about you know? that, that episode, right, um, where she is, like, being really mean to, uh, to Welfare Queen, and um, the audience starts to turn on they her. They turn right? on her, right. right. And, and basically, Ruth saves the episode by kidnapping the baby, right? Um, <laughs> um, and so, I do think, but I, do, I think it's it's there a little bit, right, that Welfare, or um, that, um, that Liberty Bell is... As Pete was saying, very over the top, right? And mm-hmm. and so I think that it isn't. But I think you're right that like Debbie doesn't really perform it as a satirical character, right? It's, it's this interesting thing, right? In thinking about right in this show, right? We're in '80s LA, right? We're in the kind of right that um, 
uh, Justine's boyfriend is in the in the punk band um, S Pope, right? Uh, uh, right, and uh, poop, poop Pope, poop Pope, right? Um, and uh, and 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 there is there's not like a lot of engagement with politics, but there's a way in which. Um, Liberty Bell could be more of a satirical character, and there's a little bit of that of her aw shucks, I'm just a good old good old American uh, gal, is a little bit um, played for last, but I, I agree that she doesn't really lean into that, and generally the audience usually just like reacts to her character by chanting USA, USA, unironically. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, whose favorite Onion headline is relevant here? Pete, is it yours? What, which one is my favorite Onion headline? I, the one about dolphins getting opposable oh, thumbs? No, no, this or? Is mine. <laughs> oh, this is Ryan's favorite Onion headline, yeah, right? Yeah, what the, uh, the uh, ironic porn purchase leads to unironic ejaculation. <laughs> ah, there you go. Right. That like, sort of ironic appreciation of, uh, of you know, campy United States femininity leads to unironic jingoistic mob <laughs> chanting right. USA, USA, USA. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, right, that, like, I, it would be a mistake to think that, like, and, and we the the wrestling fans have covered this better on overthinking it about actual wrestling better than I could, but I think it's it's highlighted here in Glow that like what the audience is responding to is a certain kind of like day glow psychodrama, mm-hmm. right? Being played you know, being played out and, and it's not even that the good it's not even that the good guy has to triumph over evil or the evil uh, good guy, good, good, good woman, uh, that the good character has to triumph over the evil character. It's that the, the powerful forces at play within self or society are like dramatized in this like uh, bombastic and kind of highly compelling, um, highly compelling way. And like, and, and also, I think by the end, it does, the show does, in its storytelling, does something pretty cool, which is that it kind of earns the sense of, um, you kind of know what it means to them, you know, and so you're glad when that last show goes well and when the wedding is like off, but then it's back on again with Bash. Um, and, uh, like that, that, uh, the, the male wrestlers who are interlopers are vanquished and, and there's this like improvisational free jazz wrestling scene, <laughs> you know, where they're, uh, and, and all these things happen. And that, like, I experienced that with, with real delight and real, like, um, a sense of like accomplishment and triumph kind of identified with the characters that like they're in their element, like they're doing their thing. And, you know, within the confines of this they they really have have found it like like the best like what community theater could be if it weren't just all trying to be commercial theater but worse i mean there's a great line in that last um match where, where debbie's uh wrestling the the male wrestler right is um that the guy lands the backflip and bash goes that guy just did a backflip <laughs> right and just and it's this, this genuine surprise and delight and i think that on the one hand he's a stand-in for the the entire audience, but I think the way that Bash engages with wrestling is really interesting, right? He's kind of, is the wrestling fan, right? That his desire for there to be wrestling and to produce wrestling in the world is at kind of, he, he is the aficionado. Yeah. Right? And it comes up a bunch of different times. And like when he, when he goes home right. and there's that, you, he like closes the closet door or something or like that the, or opens the, the mirror or something and there's a whole bunch of pictures of wrestling. Inside uh, his closet. Yeah, inside, yeah, inside the closet, <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of wrestling. So I'm sure Men. <laughs> a lot of, yeah, exactly. And and then in the very last episode, he like grabs the woman and marries her yeah. in a like an over the top display of heterosexuality. Why on earth would Bash be so concerned uh, about displaying his uh, just unquestioned heterosexuality <laughs> to everybody uh, at these moments? Yeah, I think it's interesting how the show kind of sets that up over time. Um, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really, I, I don't, I really don't know how this works, right? Like, like psychologically, but it does seem like the show is really set up, you know, yes, by like the down to the closet that is open with pictures of like half naked wrestling men. Um, you know, to like the the way he is like distraught about the loss and how emotionally he invested he is in his um, childhood friend slash butler. 
Well, right. So, right, that, I, and there's a few beats, right? That before he learns that um, Florian has died of uh, of AIDS, right? He's looking for Florian and ends up at a gay club, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the and the two women are like having a great time. Yeah. They just want to dance because right. well, the music's good and it's a good bar and well, like it's fun. And, and I think Carmen says, right? There's there's going to be a pink flamingos dress up, and I can't wait to see everyone dressed like birds. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking again of John Waters. Speaking, yeah. of, speaking of our boy, our boy J Dubs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And uh, right, yeah, okay. So that's beat one. He goes to the gay club to look for Flory. And his, and, and well, oh yeah, yeah. Beat one is when he talks to the older butler right. who has a knowing look on his face and refuses to tell him the truth about his situation, which he almost certainly has figured out. Right. But yes, beat one. After that, he goes to the well, 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 beat zero is back in season one, actually, when there's that um, uh, when Bash is with Carmen Machu Picchu. Right. And uh, and 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 he kisses Carmen and they make up the story about the two of them being together to cover up for something. I don't remember the details of it. Right. Um, But that uh, I don't know if they had that in in the whole arc planned at that point there. I mean, that could have played out something more uh, heteronormative and conventional where, um, you know, it's yet another one of the the talents sleeping with the, the business side. Uh, of the of the production um but then in season two it, i mean clearly it goes in a different place right let's also not forget that um for some reason uh bash is just like hanging out in carmen's room without his pants on <laughs> without without or without a shirt on but that's like it's it's no well it's in in the first season it was because it was for carmen's family right, right? like so that yeah. they would let yeah. her they would let her right. wrestle right. like because for, for and this has to do a lot with gender performance right like she was mm-hmm. a proper lady if she was married or something like that right. or maybe it was that uh, i forget the exact details but that's that the right. like the having the boyfriend is important kind of in the way that it's important for justine right when her mom tries to come and take her away from mark Marin, right like she has a boyfriend and this is like uh a self-actualizing moment yeah. for her. Oh right? my god. She's- and, and she has the dresses. It's a very powerful symbol right. there. The yeah. gender performance. Yeah. yeah. The, but the that but then it it's no mistake that the one that Bash is attracted to, right, is the one whose gender identity is not straightforwardly feminine. Right? <laughs> and that like that they're Carmen, yeah. that they're just sort of buds. You know, right. sitting there because it's not even hinted that they're sexually involved, right? They're, they're, he's just hanging out, and it's kind of not a big deal. Well, they, they set up that she's kind of in, in love with him, right? Sure. And, and sort of, there's a lot of good shots of her being crestfallen once he he steps in and, and marries Britannica. You know, I think that gets to also like uh, maybe beat Inception. I don't know Inception. I don't know beat beat womb. I don't know. Is that I think Bash is played. Very much like man child mode, right? A that, little bit. I mean, his house is kind of, he is kind of a peewee. He is in kind of a peewee in his playhouse, yeah. <laughs> right. he, he is a peewee in his playhouse. I think he, you know, you, you, you get the impression for him and like he, like the unbridled love of wrestling and like the kind of, you know, sometimes like a sense of naivete and yeah. like wonder. Like, this is someone who is not totally. Self-aware, fully grown developed, up. grown up, right? Hasn't, you know, hasn't kind of figured those things out. And I guess to an extent, like, you know, Carmen's flink, pink flamingo, like a side, you know, there's a certain element of, like, Carmen is still, like, kind of a child, too, right? Yeah. And she's still young and not fully grown up. And well, there is, and like, that bond. The she has to wear the shirt that says, I peed the bed until I was ten. ten. Right? Is, right. Is that what her brother makes her wear uh, as, as penance uh, in the last match, right? Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, you know, I think that, I, I think that's also beat, beat womb or beat ex, whatever. The birth of the beat. The birth of the beats about, like, um, you know, Bash being, like, closeted. Um, I think there's this sense that he doesn't, Right, it's all part. I think the way he plays the character is all part of him, like not really kind of like address, you know, addressing like or fully realizing something about himself. Yeah. And then, oh yeah, sorry, Pete, you go. Oh, I was gonna say later on. There's also a scene where he gets his pants tailored, and there's a girl kneeling in front of him, and he like doesn't even notice. <laughs> it's there. It's very conspicuous when you realize what's going on. He like doesn't care at all. <laughs> but then, but then Florian dies of AIDS. Yeah. Right. And then, and that like, like two things happen. One is like whatever unresolved 
uh, personal issues he he has, like the cultural, kind of in the way that like people come down the the form, uh, people come down the pike, and like we form them into stereotypes as you know as needed based on the stereotypes that we have. Like the cultural mode of expression available to him to deal with this incredible sense of like tension and uh, struggle within himself is gay panic, right. and right, so he's like you know bleached the whole house. You know, uh, and then and then like does this sort of d- display of of heterosexuality, and right? Very public on camera. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like you know, like really, you know, Bash is is all straight. Okay, when I'm, I'm marrying a girl, mm-hmm. you know, all right here on camera, you all can see it. Right, and there's this sort of uh, there's this sort of sense of protesting too much in the in the way that he does it. And I was, I mean, I was thinking about it. Took me a minute, right? Like because I was thinking about well. Well, did they really prepare that for him to step out and do that? But then, but then you realize why what's going on with him uh, in his arc at that moment, and it, it all comes together and kind of makes sense. When they they plant a real seed, right? They um, Sam says something in the control booth like, "What just happened?" Uh, and Ruth says, "Well, I don't know, but uh, Rhonda just married a millionaire without a prenup, right?" And so, I mean, that by that point, they've kind of started to um, achieve uh, escape velocity uh, on the season and are kind of starting to set up or at least telegraph some of the potential trajectories for season three, right? And I think, I mean, the other big one there is, right, Horatio Sands, who just shows up, right? Horatio <laughs> Sands in the You're role... You're killing me, Smalls! <laughs> right, in the, in the role he was meant to play as, like, <laughs> as the, the owner of the chain of, like, strip clubs that serve great wings, right? And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and and uh, and it's it's kind of great and and it, it's weird, right? Because when he's introduced in the second to last episode, it's like, oh, this is weird to bring in Horatio Sands for like a very small cameo as like chaperone at the um, at the school dance. But then and then he's like, it's, it's also very then funny where like. You know the season has kind of ended, right? Uh, and they they are told that they can't you know sell the show um, because they don't own their characters. Um, and uh, Mark Myers says, "Well, this is sometimes how stories end." And then all of a sudden, like the music picks up. And it's like, mm-hmm. guys, we can put on a show, right? Uh, it is you know it also has a little bit of a, a Muppets take Manhattan kind of vibe. Yeah, right? or that like Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney, like, hey guys, we're putting on a wrestling show. Yeah, it must be yeah exactly, must be Berkeley. Except it's not circles. They don't dance in circles. Circles. They dance in the squared circle of the of the ring. All right, before we uh, before we wrap up, Pete, uh, I think you might want to talk a little bit about the Muppets take Manhattan. Oh well, you see, Matt, peoples is peoples, <laughs> noise buildings <laughs> is is tomatoes. Uh, is peoples is peoples. No, I love the Muppets take Manhattan. It's so great. It's my favorite Muppet movie, and I spiritual identify with anybody who cites it as life advice. <laughs> I really like the Muppets take Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the I love the whisper campaign that they take from it. Uh, I love the, I don't know. It's it, look Charles Grodin is great and all, but you know you gotta love the Muppets take Manhattan <laughs> and the Manhattan melodies and the joy of putting that show together. I mean, talk about a, a movie that's about people who find a non-zero some way to self-actualize. Right. Right. Like the Muppets take Manhattan is a movie about a bunch of friends who get into a bunch of conflicts with each other that they want to win or lose. But it turns out the way there's a way for them all to win, which is for them to all to express themselves and to create a space where they can all express themselves alongside each other. Um, and, and also where they can wear mustaches and and swap out Liza Minnelli's portrait for their own or whatever it is that they do. Don't, don't go for second best, baby. Put your love to the test. You got to got to make the puppets express how they feel. Uh, by the way, I actually couldn't believe that they actually cleared a Madonna song for a TV show uh, for the for the dance. All right. Well, uh, I, I, this is where we end up at the end of the at the end of the season. Uh, the show is headed to Vegas. Bash and Britannica are married. Justine is back with her mother in Sacramento, which, which you know, judging from some friends who grew up there, uh, is as bad as she says it is. You know, uh, and especially if you're into uh, you know uh, arty like art schlock horror cinema, right? It's not not super great. And uh, and we're going on to see. I can't see how we don't go on to season three. Let's just quick go around the horn and see. Uh, do we have any? Anything that we want to see in season three, we can go. Well, you know what? Let's let's go in a slightly different order. Mark, what what do you think? Uh, what do you think you're you're pining for in Glow season three? I want to make sure they get back on TV. 
right? The fact that they're on cable TV is really important, right? The, the fact that this new form of mass media allows for different, more experimental uh, niche forms of entertainment, and the fact that it also gets it out to a wide nationwide audience. Um, you know, at the end, they talk about how, you know, it's a live show, it's Vegas, that has its own a certain set of appeal, but to me, the show was much more about the cable and the nation, nationwide mass media finding a niche audience piece of it. Also, so, given the transition in pro wrestling from being like circuit wrestling, which you know yeah. live shows that go from town to town into uh, into televised wrestling. Yeah, so I, I have to assume that they'll kind of circle the way around back, or like the the, the KDTV people will uh, come back crawling on their knees and you know negotiate uh, something new for for TV rights, uh, but. Uh, I, I eagerly anticipate. The hey, what, what about you? The waves. Well, I'm really excited for the Ladybird crossover that's going to take place in Sacramento. <laughs> it's going to be a 1989 period piece between Justine and a young Ladybird. No, uh, the thing I really would love to see next season is that. Ruth and Sam, that's the name of the Mark Marin character, right, have this relationship that has an intimacy to it that isn't sexual. And Sam keeps screwing up and thinking that the intimacy is sexual because, like many men, he doesn't uh, understand the, the sexual and, and uh, non-sexual intimacy and, and kind of like uh, physical love and, and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't have it all kind of straightened out in a way that he can manage well because, <laughs> like, he feels one thing. He feels everything. Um, but I would love for the show to, well, not devolve into a will they or won't they between Sam and Ruth, but to investigate a little bit more like the nature of their relationship outside of the sort of Ever present danger that he that she is going to at one point feel so bad for him that she sleeps with him. Right. Although it probably is well, probably that's what's going to happen. So, but I hope that, that I hope that they they take it in a more interesting direction than that. Hopefully, it's a slow burn to that. Like if it, if if it goes there, hopefully they or, right. So they, one way they could go is like a full fledged like love triangle, right? With Russell, Sam, and Ruth, which I think would be less satisfying than like earning that over a longer. Arc, arc, if they even earn it at all, or even if they go that direction. Um, um, and yeah, and, and uh, sorry, Pete, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say that I, I'll see your uh, Russell, Sam, and Ruth love triangle and raise you a Sam, Ruth, and Wayne Newton love triangle. Uh, <laughs> yeah. ah, there well, go. you know, you know, Pete, it's it's not unusual. <laughs> <laughs> to be loved by uh, anyone. Uh, do you have? <laughs> do you, <laughs> what I don't know. The uh, do you have any uh, any thoughts about season three, Rachel? I mean, I I mean, I agree with Pete that definitely um, there's. I mean, the Sam and Roof tension, which I actually think there is. I think a sexual tension between them, or like it's not totally clear. What I, I agree that there's some ambiguity about what's going on there. But um, but it, that it could definitely be sexual. Uh, that is going to play out. I think the show. My prediction would be that like everyone feels a little creatively stagnant in Vegas. Hmm. I think they're going to because they got to do the same show night, night after, after night, after night, night. night. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the wear of doing the show every night like that is going to be like physically and emotionally demanding in a way that um, they'll be a little creatively stagnant because it's going to be a live show. There may be, um, it may be harder for Sam to, like, kind of have the same level of, like, kind of cinema, like, cinematograph, I don't know, like, kind of control over the yeah. cinematography yeah. and the direction in the same way. Like, he's not really, he's a movie, he's a film director, right. right? And, like, I think, and you know, he sees and thinks of things that way. I don't really know if, like, anyone, like... The show has not, like, no one in the show has paused to think about, like, wait, we're directing, like, a big live production that's, like, kind of different. Um, like, it's a different kind of situation. And so I think there's going to be weird, um, in some ways it'll seem, like, on the surface, like, like the show, um, you know, I don't know, it could go ways. It could seem, like, on the surface, like, the show is, like, wildly successful, um, but everyone's feeling kind of in, you know, emotionally drained by it, um, and what, and like stagnant in one way or other, or it could be more of a grind and a failure that filling 58,000 seats is like really hard 
and they're not going to get there. See, um, my, my hope is related, but it's the opposite direction. My hope is that they lean into the spectacle, right? They do the Siegfried and Roy collabo, and there's tigers. There are, yeah. There's tigers in the ring. It becomes like gladiatorial combat or a kind of really extreme um, performance art, right? And it's hard because that's, you know, so it becomes like Cirque du Soleil before Cirque du Soleil. That's a, that's a good one. And my, mine, I guess, has more to do with the storytelling style. I'd like an episode on each of the women huh. in the in the thing. And especially since, like, a lot of the... Lost style, maybe. Or, like, yeah. especially because a lot of the creative team is associated with Orange is the New Black. Mm-hmm. Like, in that style where you kind of do one backstory per. And I know they were already introduced and we know a little bit about them. But, like, I don't know. I think the, the characters are interesting beyond the, like, the central five uh, let's say, and it would be nice. It would be nice to kind of do right by those characters by kind of filling them out a little bit and making sure that they are, uh, uh, you know, making sure they're a little more three dimensional and that everyone has the chance to be kind of a, a main character in her own story. That was the overthinking, the gorgeous overthinkers of podcasting, <laughs> the slightly above average, <laughs> the <laughs> scoop. <laughs> <laughs> I think that name is taken. Uh, the, the slightly above average looking overthinkers of podcasting, <laughs> the, the <laughs> aging, but, but totally, you know, down in their youth, you know, <laughs> overthinkers of podcasting. Uh, I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank very much Pete and Mark, uh, Stal- stalwarts, regular, on uh, the Overthinking Podcast, and I want to thank uh, interloping wrestlers, TFT punk correspondent Rachel D, TFT PCRD, and uh, TFT host Ryan Sheely for uh, joining the podcast. Thank you all very much for doing that. Uh, we'll be back next week with more Overthinking It Podcast. What's that I hear? Uh, a theme song in 5 4? Whatever could that be? We'll find out next week. Until then, it's impossible to know. It's impossible to know. Uh, But we'll make it our mission to bring it to you next week. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It It probably doesn't. doesn't Can you smell what the Amish kitchen is cooking? (laughs) 